Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Australia is a place to live, job prospects, your life overall, how happy you feel. It's all net negative, which again is probably explained as a reaction to the economic circumstances. But the big standout was high 40s saying their personal financial situation has deteriorated. Hi, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here with Peter Lewis, the Executive Director at Essential, and we're discussing this fortnight's Guardian Essential poll. Following last week's budget, we've heard a lot from the politicians. So today, we'll be looking at what the public thinks about Labor's first full year budget. Hello, Peter. G'day, Paul. Now, the, the thing I have found fascinating about these results is that people never seem to think that budgets are going to benefit themselves personally. What did respondents to the poll have to say about this? Look, there are two sorts of budgets, right? There are the budgets that are very much geared to the cash splash. You know, those budgets where the government is distributing a surplus or drastically addressing bracket creep and the headlines are, you know, the papers are full of tables of how much will you get. The fire hose with the cash coming out of it. Yeah, uh, you know, remember the good old days of Peter Costello where there was more money than they could work out what to do. That's not. This is not one of those budgets. Um, this is a budget where the government took some, albeit um, modest, action on addressing pressures on the most vulnerable um, and also made a virtue of not spending too much money and not throwing too much money around and... In terms of signal and response, it kind of landed. The only groups, you know, compared to the last budget and the last couple of budgets where people thought there were people better off, were people on lower incomes, um, people who are well off, it sort of dropped down to 41% thought they were doing okay. Um, Spoiler alert, wait till next year's stage three tax cuts and that number should go up a little bit. Older Australians um, and people on lower income, it's sort of gone up from 25% thought the last budget, which was delivered, I think it was October last year, was going to make them better off. That's gone up substantially to 41 and 37, respectively. Um, You personally, which is just sort of the people responding, it's gone up from 16 to 24. So it wasn't like the budget flopped. It just, you know, we've been conditioned, I think, to receive very consumer-oriented budgets, and this wasn't one of them. The problems the government faced were far more wicked than who to give the booty to. 
Um, mm. And I think the responses reflect that. So glass half empty for the government, only about a quarter of respondents think it would be good for them personally, but glass half full, that's eight points higher than it was after the October budget. Uh, so 50%, you know, going up from 16 points to, to 24 mm. points. That's actually landed a lot better than last one. Um, yeah, and, but even in the longer term, sorry to interrupt, was we went through those couple of years of extraordinary budgets through the pandemic where government was propping up the economy, they doubled the size of the New Start allowance, job seeker allowance. They um, they were taking measures just to keep things holding. So we're still back in that transition state. It's been left to Labor to deliver on that under the global pressures of um, the two strands, one of which is the inflation that is a global phenomenon. And the other one is that because of the war in Ukraine, there is a heap of money flowing in in terms of royalties for Australian resources, which is, again, putting more pressure. So there's that whole cycle going on there. So I think if Jim Chalmers had said, what do I want out of this budget for people to think that it's kind of balanced, um, that we've done what we can, but we've got some straight jackets on it, I don't think it's been anything other than what he would have hoped for. Yeah, and in terms of the group that people thought it benefited most, it just crawled up to a majority. 51% of people said it would benefit people receiving government payments. So it seems that, you know, the the $40 a fortnight job seeker increase uh, and maybe the 15% increase to the maximum rate of rent assistance did have some cut through then. Well, yes, on the people that don't receive it particularly. So we'd have to dig in deeper and see what the response was for lower income people. Um, Oh, you think that could be some negative attention, uh, some downward envy from people that noticed that people less well off than them got something out of the budget? Well, it, it is a constant of Australian politics that people do look down, they don't look up when they're sort of looking at where government money is going. So we see all sorts of uh, handouts and boon toggles to the top end of town, um, including a whole range of um, tax concessions for the rich that will not be touched in this term of government. And then you look at the incremental increases at the bottom end and people tend to get exercised about that. Although I do feel there's a bit of a, a sea change on that. The tropes of the dull bludger I don't think are as strong as they were in the past. I think people recognise that those that are locked out of the labour market are facing more systemic challenges than just um, wanting to sit on the couch pulling a bong. Mm. Yeah, and one thing I noticed was uh, although just 19% of respondents said the budget would reduce poverty, that was a lot higher. It was 31% amongst those aged 18 to 34 who are more likely uh, to be receiving a youth allowance and Oz study and those those types of payments. So ma- maybe some of it did uh, did get through to people receiving it. Um, the, the big story I had with a lot of... We asked a series of questions and, again, as every week, people can go to essentialreport.com.au to have a look at this. We asked people the likelihood of the federal government delivering on certain outcomes. And it was low for everything. It almost felt like people thought this budget lacked consequence. It wasn't a consequential budget. It was a different sort of budget. It was a budget that was walking across a tightrope rather than a budget that was doing fancy steps or twirls. or It was just to get to the other side. So on indicators that have traditionally been high, like creating jobs, that 
you know, during the pandemic, 52% thought the budgets that um, Frydenberg and Morrison was handing down were going to be job creating. That's down to 33. Um, keeping debt under control, even though that was one of the main aims and it was a surplus budget, the number was lower than it was when there's been um, deficit budgets running, 29%. And on helping relieve cost of living pressures, it's only 26% of people think it would make a meaningful difference. And critically, it's lower than previous, but placing unnecessary burdens on future generations, 46% see that, and that is linked to age as well. Mm. Obviously, the pandemic budgets just did so much stimulus, so much intervention in the economy. They were outside the norm. And now we're back to the the belt tightening and banking the teeny tiny $4 billion surplus and not wanting to add to inflationary pressures to cause more interest rate rises. So I guess that lowers the ambition and, and lowers the expectation about, you know, what can be achieved out of a budget. But what did people, what did people make of the need to bank a surplus and to uh, contain inflation? Well, I think this is the most interesting response we received on a week of very, very interesting questions, Paul, which was we we gave people a binary choice between um, the proposition that the government's done the right thing in delivering a budget surplus that will ease pressure on inflation, the balance argument, or the government should have used the money to provide direct support for people under cost of living pressure, 5941 would rather have seen the government spending money rather than banking the surplus. Now, that's not what economists tell us is good for them. That's not what the political consensus tells them. It might just be that when people read that, they say, give me money, and they want to go back to the good old budgets that gave us money. But it does strike me that that is a bit of a caution. And I write a column about this in The Guardian today, that um, balance on its own is probably not enough for a Labor government that's trying to set up government for the long term. It might be a decent launch point, a stable, balanced starting point, but I was, as I am wont to do, I was trying to torture a metaphor and I did. it did strike me that if the budget was a punctuation mark on the first year of Albanese, the big question is whether that sense of balance was an exclamation mark or a question mark. So discuss. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, why not a semicolon? <laughs> um, what now, does a semicolon even do except irritate sub-editors, Paul? <laughs> uh, breaks up different items in a list. I don't know. Moving on to the second set of questions. Uh, it's not every fortnight that you publish the two-party preferred plus, uh, but we've got the two-party preferred plus this month and it shows Labor with a pretty healthy lead. What, what can you tell us about that? Yes, just for um, recent viewers, we'll just rewind 2019 when the idea of polling as a scoreboard really came under question. We made the decision that we were missing one very important thing when we were polling people and coming up with two party preferreds that add up to 100, which was we were disenfranchised and the disengaged. So since then, we have added in the option of don't know when we're asking people who they're going to vote for. We ask them who do you think you're going to vote for? If they say don't know, we, we, we prod them and say, who might you vote for? And if they can't give us an answer, we still count them. So I can't give you a neat formulation that adds up to 100. What I can give you is our 2PP+, plus, which has Labor at 53, the Coalition at 42, with 5% undecided, which, if we were doing it in the old thing, is about a 56-44, but we're not talking about that. Um, primary vote for Labor at 35 
primary vote for coalition at 31, 14% for the Greens, 14% for other. Now, that seems like things are in balance, except other includes independents, including the teal independents, which you could make an argument, sit closer to the centre rather than the right side of the coalition. So, and then 5%, as we said, undecided. So, they're good numbers for an incumbent government after a year in power. There's, you know, we've, we've spoken on this show about how difficult a first-term opposition is. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about the lead that the incumbent government after a year has, but it's significant. Yeah, and they they built on their lead in previous polls. It was narrower towards the end of last year, and you'd expect that given, you know, the only uh, litmus test we've had at a uh, at an election poll was the Aston by election, which the government got a swing to it and and picked up a, an opposition seat, which is uh, very unusual, one in a hundred years. But can I just point you to another question we asked today because it was the first year coming up, which was whether people thought things had got better or worse, or hadn't changed over the last 12 months. So polling numbers looking really great, but if you ask people if things on a whole bunch of areas have got better or worse, um, and I can go through these really quickly, and again, if you're playing at home, you can go to the website. For the vast majority, people say it's made no difference, and just consider that for a moment. No difference from the final year of the imploding Morrison government, which we all convinced ourselves was the worst government ever, and we're saying our life is no better. Now, in specifics, um, the only areas we think things have got better in net, so if you take out net positive minus net negative, how Indigenous people are treated, fingers crossed that flows through to a voice, but again, downward end me might have another answer there and efforts to it address climate change really incrementally, net 7% plus. But in terms of Australia as a place to live, job prospects, your life overall, how happy you feel, it's all net negative, which again is probably explained as a um, reaction to the economic circumstances. But the big standout, your personal financial situation, net 33%. That was the only one where the majority of people didn't say things have gone nowhere. It was high 40s saying their personal financial situation has deteriorated. So the Marxist in me would say the material conditions within the country of which this government is governing have deteriorated over the last 12 months. And that does create long-term challenges for the guys running the country. Yeah, and I mean, a reflection of 11 interest rate rises in a row and high electricity prices and other sources of inflation. And I think the 2PP result is more, um, you know, not saying, uh, do you feel better off than you were a year ago? It's just like, do you blame the new government yet for the shit 12 months that it's been economically? And enough people are saying no. The other thing is that so many of their reforms are not things that you would expect to necessarily immediately bear fruit. So, yeah, you know, they make a submission to the Fair Work Commission that gets a slightly higher than usual minimum wage rise, but the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill doesn't uh, get passed till the second half of last year and will take years and years to flow through uh, in, in pay deals that people negotiate in their, in their workplaces. Yeah, and let's just geek out on the wages because you and I are both members of the Career Colder Act that was known as the IR round. So the budget did start funding the increase for aged care workers. There is also 
through that legislation, there is, we believe, a multi-employer bargaining case being prepared for early learning workers. Um, There is a separate piece of legislation that's sort of out there on the near horizon around dealing with the impact of loopholes in labour hire and other forms of contract work. So you're right, the government is not being judged on what they inherited and they do have a series of plans to improve the material conditions of significant parts of the workforce. Um, And, of course, with the early learning, it's also got a huge impact on easing the pressure on families whose kids are at a preschool age because it's really, really expensive. So you're right there. It's not gloom and doom, but I just put it out there as a caution in that, you know, people aren't glowing in any sort of economic sunshine at the moment. It's a tough time for a lot of people. And um, I think we've got conditioned to government doing things. And if, if the pandemic, which now seems like a lifetime ago, it was only three years that the last lockdowns ended, um, governments, <laughs> governments step up when things are hard. And that's going to be the challenge of this government. Less than two years, wasn't it? It was. It I know. Was I, I was octo- thinking for October a numbers 20, guy that was terrible. October. Yeah. It was about October 2021, I think, at least in Canberra, that we got let out. Um, and the, another thing that was remarkably stable, despite uh, grumbles about, you know, their economic situation, the the leaders, the leaders' approval is is pretty well the same. Anthony Albanese's come back up a jot, but people still thinking basically the same thing of the leadership contest. Yeah, so we've got with um, our Prime Minister approval at the end of his first year in office at 54. He peaked at 60 in November. Um, He never got higher than 41 in opposition and 35% disapproval, 11% on the fence. Um, With the DART, let's just see if I can bring it up. I've got it in front of me. Uh, Dutton was steady at 36%, uh, who approve, 45% disapprove, and 19% don't know. And that's that's higher in the don't know column than um, Anthony Albanese. Uh, just 11% said they don't know how he's doing. So obviously it's it's tougher to get airtime when you're the opposition leader. Yeah, like he's baked in with that thick red line, isn't he, at the moment? And there's very little he's doing apart from, you know, blowing certain whistles to turn that around. And, you know, that will be interesting. I think the most interesting story, is, as you noted in the budget in reply, was that opening up of immigration as a driver of housing prices. And I think we'll see that coming back a number of times over the next little period. Yeah, they've been sort of warming up on that for a few months, but he really he really took it to prime time. And yeah, that was the main question time attack all through budget week, you know, just didn't want to talk about um, the actual measures, the decisions that the government was making, just these projections about migration numbers, which are, you know, fac- a lot of factors outside their control about students coming back and all the rest of it. But I guess that's like one thing I would say is if you've framed your budget to be sensible and balanced and sober you do open yourself up to crazy on the edges, right? Because you're not filling the space of big ideas and big debates. And I think even their their greatest supporters would say it was a bit of a nothing-to-see-here budget and let's keep moving on. Labor is returning immigration levels to the numbers the previous government was signed up to before the pandemic lockdown. 
intellectually that is unremarkable, but in a void of colour and movement, that is something that is there to be exploited. And, you know, he wouldn't be Peter Dutton if he didn't have a crack from the right. And uh, moving on from today's scare to yesterday's scare, the Indigenous voice to Parliament and the Executive uh, seems to be holding up despite, you know, a month or two ago the Coalition deciding to vote against it. Uh, What did we find there? Yeah, look, it's been kind of around that 60-40 level for the last three months. It was a bit higher over the summer um, and I think that the the first wave of Peter Dutton obfuscation, the give us the detail, knocked a little bit of the top off that. I think the most interesting thing to me in these numbers, we ask people to indicate the hardness of their vote. So um, of that 59% intending to vote, yes, 31% are hard, locked in, and that's dropped down 7% from the beginning of the year, 28% soft. Um, they're the voters that need to be reassured, A, that it will make a difference, this proposal to bring in um, Indigenous recognition through a voice, but also that the what we're getting and we're running a lot of the community engagement with the campaign is that the two main concerns are will it make a practical difference and do First Nations people actually support it? And the nature of the No campaign is elevating a few angry voices really heightens that sense that there isn't consensus. Now, why would there be? It's a, it's a disparate community of nations across our nation and um, there are different views. But the polling that's been done shows 80% support of the proposition and people seeing it as the first step in moving forward towards the treaty we have to have. And strong support above 60% in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. Queensland, the only state with uh, the no side having a slight edge, 51-49. WA also finely balanced, 52-48 in favour. And Tasmania, too small a sample to be... Too small to count. Well, I've got to say, even without... Because what we do, Paul, is we run this as a national sample of 1,000 that is... ABS weighted. So the numbers in WA and Queensland are quite small. So they tend to be a bit bouncier. So for instance, over the last three months, WA has gotten 55, 70, 52, and Queensland's gone 49, 55, 49. But it's worth just having a look at the overall trend just to see what's going on. Um, Because as I'm sure your educated listenership know, it's not just a first past the post referendum. It's a super majority, so you've got to get 50% plus one of the national vote and then not win half the states but win the majority of states. So you've got to win 4-2 and the territories don't count, but that means two states puts you on the edge and if you if three states go no, the referendum fails regardless of the numbers. So I think at the moment the areas that the campaign's concerned about a Queensland WA and TAS. Not concerned they're going to lose it, but the ones that in the doomsday scenario be the ones that didn't fall. Um, so we are keeping an eye on it. But there is a lot of really interesting action going on the ground in those states over the next few months. And I think people that are that interested in supporting the voice in any community and go to yes23.com.au, but there are events happening around the country to get this thing rolling. Right. 
And uh, I know Anthony Albanese has been very strenuous in separating these questions. He did an interview with Piers Morgan and said that the Republic referendum Mark II was not imminent and he, he didn't want to be a prime minister that just presides over constitutional debates. But I'm going to do the segue anyway from one type of constitutional change to another. So what did you find? Did as many Australians uh, support a Republic as support an Indigenous voice? Um, it's a little bit down. 54-46 say that if there was a referendum on Australia becoming a public, how would you vote? Obviously, there's a fair bit of water to go under the bridge. Um, I've got a different view to Albo, though, on this, and it's one that I'll, I'll develop up over the next little period. But I think the best opportunity for a public is actually it's all part of that truth-telling of our nation and to look at the link between the voice vote and the Republic vote is kind of a natural and you probably look at the next decade of nation building and it goes voice Republic treaty. Now, government will hate this because they just want to get the first piece done, but that is the nation building that's sort of in front of us. And to me, I think the best way of getting all the way is rather than frame the Republic as a debate between law students and a couple of members at the bar that no one else understands that is all seeking the perfect. It's actually about a proper conversation about our colonial history and where we are as a nation. Now, that's a lot more ambitious, a lot harder, but my thesis is that if you're going to do it, you've got to do it for a good reason, and treaty's probably a better reason than that people don't like Charles. And what's the overlap there? Is it yeah. basically the same 54% saying they want both and then a little, a few more people saying they want voice but not a republic? What are you yeah, seeing no, in terms of... Yeah, no, we've done the cross tabs. So I haven't put it on the website, which is why I was blundering around on my various computer screens. But 50% um, of people that are hard yes for voice are also hard yes for republic. So that's your base. Um, and beyond that, there is a pretty strong crossover. There's very few hard no voice that are hard yes, Republic, and vice versa. So it hasn't even been framed in these terms yet. I don't think anyone will do a whole lot of that thinking until we get through the next period. But if we can create momentum around constitutional renewal for First Nations, it does seem a natural next step to, to harness that momentum to have a proper discussion about what British colonialism actually looked like, because that's another truth we haven't really spoken much about. Well, in December, uh, hopefully after an emphatic yes vote, you'll have to poll treaty and you'll have to poll republic again and see if uh, once people get a taste for constitutional change, they come back for more. A drug that people just can't get enough of, constitutional reform. <laughs> well, it's the drug we can't get enough of uh, and similarly uh, polling numbers. So thank you very much for uh, bringing the stash to today's podcast, Peter. Oh, and thanks for rolling it, Paul, as well. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.